0: Today's Imprint Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Accenture. Change is afoot in child welfare. Change that means agencies focus on results for children and keep far more of them safe at home with their own families. Accenture's child welfare team is leading the way in the effort to ensure technology does its part in that success story. Accenture offers cutting-edge case management tools that ensure agencies can see insights that drive decision-making and caseworkers have information they need at their fingertips. Together, these tools help agencies stay laser focused, reinventing child welfare into a source of strength for families when they need it. For more information, visit www.accenture.com backslash child welfare.
1: Hello and welcome to the imprint weekly podcast. I'm John Kelly, senior editor of the imprint, a daily news site covering child welfare and youth justice around the country. You can read all of our coverage at imprintnews.org or check us out on Facebook or Twitter at At The Imprint News. You can sign up on our homepage for our free weekly and monthly newsletters and for professionals in job welfare and youth justice, subscribe to our Youth Services Insider section for a closer look at news on business policy and practice. The Imprint Weekly Podcast is also a member of the Safe Camp Audio Network. Check out our show page and all of Safe Camp's other great podcasts. At safecampaudio.org on the web or at safecampaudio on all social media. On this week's episode, we continue our summer of Safe Camp Spotlights with Ivory Bennett, who recently launched Ivory Bennett the podcast. Easy name to remember. It is also fortuitous timing to air this one now because Ivory has also joined our family here at Fostering Media Connections. She is our new program director for the Youth Voices Rising Program. For those who are not aware of what that does, we work with youth who have lived experience either with foster care or incarceration, juvenile justice experience, youth homelessness, or a combination of those things. The core of the program is to work with them on their writing, whether it's an op-ed or a reflective piece. For those who want a little bit more of an in-depth experience learning about journalism, we have a Youth Voice Contributor Program. And that program has been developed over the last three years by Raquel Wilson. And I'm so excited to see where Ivory takes it now. Before we get to Ivory, let's go through some recent headlines and I I do apologize if the audio is not up to our usual PAR experience. This week I'm recording from my Airbnb in Minneapolis where I am because I was attending the Conference of the National Association of Council for Children, which had some really great panel sessions I checked out. Did a couple of live podcast interviews that you'll hear shortly. Also met with some of our folks in Minnesota, including our new reporter here, Alex Perez. Stay tuned for some great stuff out of him. Actually, like I said, I'm in my Airbnb doing the recording, but I actually got to outline this podcast while sitting at Wildflyer Coffee, which employs young people either experiencing housing instability, or youth homelessness, and just a wildly effusive plug for them. It's a great coffee shop with a great mission. So if you're ever in the Twin Cities, Wildflyer Coffee, check it out. Okay, so let's start with two very different stories about legal rights and the pursuit of becoming a foster parent. First, we have an interesting settlement out of Pennsylvania involving the Federal Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights. But This agreement stems from a complaint that the Northumberland County Child Welfare Agency discouraged a woman from applying to become a foster parent based on her use of prescribed methadone to treat her substance use disorder. That is according to a voluntary resolution agreement in the case. The federal government said that the complaint also alleged the local child welfare agency denied the parent in question without conducting a thorough assessment of the woman's ability to successfully parent foster children. So they just out of hand as a result of her being on the medication assisted treatment using methadone, rejected her pursuit of a foster care license. So this agreement, you know, it's worth mentioning, covers specifically those medications used as treatment. Buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone, it is not inclusive of illicit drugs, which would, you know, active use of which would prevent you from becoming a foster parent under the agreement and pretty much anywhere. This is similar to a previous agreement that the feds came to with the state in 2020 The same federal office entered into a similar agreement with West Virginia after an aunt and uncle were denied the chance to adopt their nephew and niece due to one of the caregivers taking Suboxone to treat opioid use disorder. So that's now two instances where the federal government has stepped in to, you know, assert that no pursuing treatment for substance use disorder is just like any other instance in which you have a medical condition and you are getting treated for it. You can't hold that against. The caregiver. So that was based on a complaint to a federal office. The other story relates to an actual federal lawsuit that was filed this month by Mike and Kitty Burke of Massachusetts, who alleged that the state violated their rights by denying them the ability to serve as foster parents because they would, and quoting from the lawsuit, would not be affirming to a child who identified as LGBTQIA. This is just from the lawsuit. Again, I'm going to read this section. As faithful Catholics, the Burks believe that all children should be loved and supported and they would never reject a child placed in their home. They also believe that children should not undergo procedures that attempt to change their God-given sex and they uphold Catholic beliefs about marriage and sexuality. So I'll preface this big caveat by saying that really the only public information so far in this case is from the lawsuit filing from the Burks, which was done by Beckett. They're a prominent litigator in the religious freedom space. They were involved in similar cases, I think in Michigan, and definitely in a case out of Philadelphia that became a Supreme Court case in Fulton v. Philadelphia. But based on the documentation in this filing, the Bergs are on record saying that they would accept LGBTQIA youth for who they were and would not stand in the way of a child pursuing gender-affirming care or even surgery. They said they would never throw a child out of their home over their preferences or attempt conversion therapy. They were actually asked that directly. They basically just indicated in their interviews with licensors and caseworkers what their beliefs were as a devout Catholic couple. So I'm going to mark this one as a case to watch for Supreme Court possibility someday because there was a very similar case filed in Oregon recently. That's also being challenged in federal court, involves a single mother of five who was denied a foster care license after she refused to agree to, quote, respect, accept, and support the sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression of any child the department could place in an applicant's home because of her faith. So same deal in that case. She said if a child in her home was transgender, she could love and accept them as they were, but would not encourage it. So it's certainly a possibility that such cases are going to be a spearhead for an answer legally, you know, on what it means to affirm something, as opposed to just support it or tolerate it, and also whether it is in the power of the government, state, or anybody to require, you know, a degree of support. Because when it really comes down to it, affirmation is just a magnitude of support on a practical level. These cases kind of made me wonder what it looks like when this issue of affirmation comes up against the prioritization of kinship caregivers at a time when, you know, there's a real push in this country with help from some planned rulemaking by the Biden team around making more kin formal caregivers with with licensure or at least approval from the system and the accompanying financial support that comes with that kind of approval. So like here's a completely plausible scenario hypothetical though. Uh, let's say a gay adolescent or teen has to be removed from a home, or the department decides they need to be removed from home, and the choice is between a non-relative home and an uncle who tells workers he doesn't personally condone the teen's lifestyle and and preferences, but is willing to take the nephew in. So, what's the deal there? You know, uh, taking a step back, you know, when systems including Massachusetts are diverting some kids to kinship homes to avoid foster care entirely, known as hidden foster care. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast, just moving kids, you know, physically, but not legally to a a kinship placement. Is there any real way that those systems know what the beliefs are in those households? So I think it's just that it's certainly now an interesting thing to keep an eye on with two lawsuits being filed. They're very similar in nature involving, you know, caregivers who have at least professed, you know, in their, their filings, that they don't have a problem or and, and are willing to care for children who have a different view than they do on sexuality or gender, uh, but aren't willing to affirm it. You know, the word affirm is the, the central thing there. So something to watch for sure. All right, going back for a second to the nexus of drugs and child welfare, I'm going to link to a story where the headline involves sort of tilts one way, even though it's a pretty well reported story. It gives you some good perspective. It's by Hannah Ray Lambert of Fox News, and it looks at Washington state's recent policy change going away from requiring that all newborns who are found to be exposed to narcotics are reported to CPS there. And under a federal legislative change in 2016, all states are supposed to be developing a plan of safe care that's what it's called for children who are born exposed to drugs. That can still happen under the new rules in Washington, but based on some discretion and some assessment where hospitals can instead offer, you know, some voluntary help and a safe care plan directly to parents in cases where, you know, the safety of the child is not observed to be at issue as a result of the the drug exposure. So the story quotes a few people that are skeptical of the change, including a father who's raising his daughter after she was sent to a center that specifically treats substance exposed newborns in the state. And just quoting from him in the story, you know, his view of this this shift in policy is now we're taking our eyes off of the child and we're focusing on the family and we're not really focusing on what the child needs, what my daughter went through and where she was placed. That was the best thing for her and I. Just harkening back to a story we discussed a few months ago, sort of an established trend line here. Connecticut took a similar approach, and you know I'll drop the fairly brief study of their process in here again. Basically, what Connecticut did, I'm assuming maybe Washington is is handling it in a similar way. Connecticut will always make a de-identified notification to CPS when a child is born and found to be exposed to drugs, but an actual report, you know, to trigger CPS review or scrutiny of a case, isn't mandatory. And the study shows that, you know, under this process, they've diverted about a half of cases away from a formal report to CPS. Last thing for this week, and really just to brag on our reporting team at the imprint a little bit to wrap things up, because it's journalism award season, and we are or were in the mix for a few of them for Amina, who has headed off to a Fulbright scholarship. She was our reporter in Minnesota, got honorable mention at the Page One Awards for Best Young Journalist. Page One Awards are a well-known contest here in Minnesota, where I'm at right now, put together by the Society for Professional Journalists. So congrats to Farad. We expect big things out of her coming out of her Fulbright, whether she gets into journalism again or not. Nell Bernstein, a great reporter who's been working with us on the, a, a series of stories about the end of California's state-run youth prisons. The series is called The Darkest Part of the Tunnel. That is a finalist for the Insight Award for Explanatory Journalism at the INN Nonprofit News Awards. And last but certainly not least, our national policy reporter Michael Fitzgerald is a finalist at the Online News Association Awards for his series High Stakes Silent Systems, an investigation into how states handle the reproductive rights of foster youth. Speaking of which, Fitzgerald filed another story in that series last week, which I'll uh, share with you guys in the show notes. It's a great profile about a coalition of former foster youth and current health professionals involved in what's called Texas Foster Youth Health Initiative. And it's a much more tailored approach to reaching youth in that state system with information and awareness around reproductive health and, and sexual health. Just gonna read from the story a bit, and this is an account of one member of this initiative, Zoe Jones Walton, who unrelated, wrote a great piece for us during that Texas ice storm a few years back about, you know, how foster youth might experience something like that. This is her talking to Michael Fitzgerald about kind of the impetus for this, and she's talking a little bit about what it was like when she was going through foster care as it relates to sexual health education. Here's what she said. They put everything in this one week, and you're supposed to just be like, okay, I'm going to remember all this when I'm out on my own in the world, said Jones Walton. Now 25 and working as an advocate, she noted dryly, I haven't. So, very good story, great series. I'll link to all of this stuff from Nell and from Michael in the show notes. And, you know, congrats to our awesome team of reporters, editors, illustrators, you know, for these series and all the great stuff they do every day. All right. When we come back, our interview with podcast host and the new Youth of Voices Rising Program Director, Ivory Bennett.
0: This episode is sponsored by Creating a Family. Creating a Family is a national nonprofit whose mission is to strengthen and inspire adoptive, foster, and kinship parents and the professionals who support them in raising children exposed to trauma. Creating a Family offers expert based and trauma informed resources and training for parents and professionals. To learn more, visit creatingafamily.org. That's creatingafamily.org.
1: All right, time for another SafeCamp Spotlight interview. All summer, we are bringing in hosts from SafeCamp's inaugural group of member podcasts. You can check out all these podcasts at safecampaudio.org, and we are regularly promoting and featuring their work on social media you can follow us on any of the big ones at at safe Camp audio today we have the host of the newest podcast on the SafeCamp audio roster and the easiest one to remember the name of it's ivory bennett the podcast and here we have herself ivory bennett ivory thanks for joining us on the imprint weekly podcast
2: thank you for having me i'm excited to be here
1: All right, well, let's get them to know you personally first. Then we'll talk about the show. You got to give me one, at least one of your favorites. I'm going to give you the categories. You can give me more than one if you want. TV or movie, sports team, musical group, or book. Ivory, what do you got? TV
2: or movie. So one of all of those things. Okay. (laughs) The Color Purple, however, I've outgrown the trauma of it. But I love the storytelling. It captivated me at the age of 12. I love it in every single medium, the musical, the book, the movie. And they're actually doing another movie, which is going to come out in December, I believe. So I really love that writer and that story. Sports team, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So it has to be the Steelers. It has to be the Pirates. It has to be the Penguins all day. It's in my blood. And I forget the other two. I'm sorry.
1: My you mind. You didn't even have to. I was. It was It the, the rule is you just got to give me one of any of them. So you went above oh, okay. and beyond there. I yeah. love that all Pittsburgh. I love the fact that all the Pittsburgh teams have the same colors, by the way. <laughs> Every every city should do that. I love that. We believe uh, black and gold. There you go. There you go. Okay, so describe your podcast in three sentences or less.
2: Okay, so my podcast is about facilitating authentic conversations through modeling. It's about exploring those taboo subjects that people don't often talk about out of shame, out of social taboo, out of fear of any kind of fear, actually. And it's about being a role model for healing and normalizing the healing process through therapy, but also other means of healing as well.
1: Yes, that was a very good description and fits to a T your first episode because he came out of the gate with an episode about sexual assault awareness, which is a very heavy topic right out of there. What made you want to go with that first? And what other kind of issues and topics do you have in mind for some more early episodes of the podcast
2: yeah so what made me want to talk about sexual assault was it was sexual assault awareness month so i really wanted to kind of coordinate with the energy and the times and it just so happened that when that was released that was what we were celebrating or not even celebrating but honoring but also i have a lot of conversations with my friends that i kid you not sound like amazing podcast and we always note this in our conversations and i just know a lot of dynamic amazing people who have had a lot of challenging things happen to them but they're still great they're still awesome they still show up to do wonderful work and so, I realized that instead of keeping these awesome conversations to ourselves, <laughs> we need to share them with the world because other people could benefit from them in the same ways that we do. And so, that's kind of why I started with sexual assault. We're going to come out with some some even harder topics, I'm sure. I know it might sound kind of crazy. How can you come out with anything more intense than sexual assault? But there's some things, there's mm. some things that we're going to talk about. And so, really, my podcast is created from wanting to share the things that I talk about on a daily basis with all of my inner circle, all of my close friends. And we all have a sincere passion for healing. And I I really want to normalize that outside of my circle as well because I realize it's something that other people struggle with. And I like to think that I'm a role model for people. And as a role model, I like to think that I have the influence to be able to show people that it's okay to be honest about things that hurt you. It's okay to be honest about your trauma. But what are you going to do about it? You know, now that you have that awareness, it's your responsibility to make the most of it for yourself. So how are you going to empower yourself through that? And that's what I hope to facilitate through through these conversations.
1: Very cool. Do you think you will take me? The- concept of these conversations with your friends and bring in you know is this is your kind of thought that you'll bring in you know thought leaders or experts on topics or do you actually gonna do you think your friends will be down to join you and actually have those conversations
2: if i can just imagine here if i can imagine here very quickly i would love to have all of that happen yeah of course i don't believe in non-consensual anything so all the conversations that you'll hear on the podcast will be completely transparently consensual But I would also love to bring in specialists and professionals in the field because I'm not a trained therapist. I'm not a trained mental health expert. I'm just someone who partakes in therapy and different healing modalities. But I would love to bring in someone who does this work whose daily life consists of dealing with trauma and unpacking it and healing it for other people. And so I would... In in a world of imagining, of, in imagination, I would love to do both. I would love to facilitate conversations amongst myself with my friends, but also facilitate conversations amongst myself, my friends, and experts in the field, and all of these different subject areas that I plan to discuss.
1: Very cool. I hope that happens. So, let's talk about your influences as you you know got the idea to do a podcast. What is your favorite podcast overall? Could be about anything, and then sub question. What's your favorite other show that really tackles these issues so one one overall one that's kind of in your lane?
2: Mm. there's so many that I could name that I can tell you one that I listen to. I can tell you two that I listen to weekly because I think that that is impactful, right? So the first is, and they're kind of like woo-woo, so some people might not agree <laughs> with them. They're astrologically based podcasts. So one is Ghost of a Podcast by Jessica Lanyadu. And so she talks every week about the astrology and how it affects everything. In her perspective, she really correlates the stars to like mental and emotional health, but also world events and and occurrences. And it really, if you don't believe in astrology, it really kind of makes sense in terms of personality styles and traits and things. The other one that I listen to is Chani Nicholson. She has a podcast weekly also about astrology. And so she ties that into kind of like relationship building and how you can forecast connecting with people throughout the week. And I listen to those two weekly. There's also another one, Black Girls Love Therapy or something I might be mixing the name up, but you can see where I'm going here. I listen to a lot of self-help podcasts.
1: (laughs) Do you view astrology as self-help philosophical? question i guess for you there I, it helps you make sense of things
2: yeah i personally do i understand that people might and other people might not that's fair you know do you you know live and love and laugh
0: <laughs> 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 but
2: i <laughs> i really do enjoy astrology outside of entertainment i think it's helped me to understand a lot about myself and i've gotten a lot of feedback that i show up in life in a way that exhibits a lot of self-understanding and, and self-realization and self-awareness. And so it's been one way that I've been able to cultivate that for myself. Again, other people might not, but you know, that's fine. That's fair. I love that for y'all.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So as you can tell just from hearing this brief conversation, Ivory's interests and the fields of expertise and knowledge base go well beyond the constraints of what this show is generally about, child welfare and youth justice. But she does know a whole heck of a lot about child welfare. She's experienced it personally. She has worked with young people for years. So I'm just going to ask you a big, wide, open-ended question to, to round yeah. this out here. What are you most optimistic about and what concerns you the most about the state of child welfare at the moment?
2: Ooh, this is a big question. I am most optimistic about the resources that youth impacted by care have access to. For example, when I was in care, I was in care for 17 years. I graduated from college in 2014. At that time, foster youth were not getting full scholarships for school or getting major financial assistance for school. But in the last I would say 16 years, I've seen that change. I've seen that become a normalized thing where foster youth or, you know, college kids who are experiencing child welfare can go to school and can have it paid for through the state and can get all kind of resources, housing, food, stipends to help with the cost of higher education and everything that brings. So I'm most optimistic about the accessibility of resources and the agency of youth impacted by care to utilize
1: those resources.
2: The second question, one of my biggest concerns or fears or worries.
1: Yeah, what are you most concerned about at the moment in terms of where the child welfare system is today?
2: I am most concerned about us putting youth impacted by care into boxes. There's not only one way to success. There's not only one way to healing. There's not only one way to overcoming the trauma of being in child welfare. And I'm concerned that these narratives that we create, the people who we pick to put on platforms and to speak as national representatives of child welfare experiences represent a very specific demographic of people, a very specific idea of success. And I would like to normalize that there is an expansiveness to success. There's an expansiveness to overcoming and to rising above adversity. And so I get concerned when I see only one type or two types or three types, the, the archetypes of the national representatives of people who were in care or are in care. And I would really love to hold space for and create seats at the table for those who don't fit those archetypes.
1: And so really more, it's like, there are different types of of young people with different interests and pursuits and subjugating some of those archetypes below the others is the is the issue, right?
2: Right. I mean, I've seen, you know, since the age, I've been advocating for about 16, going on 17 years now. I started at the age of about 16 when I entered independent living. And I've just seen certain people cherry picked and they all fit certain demographics. They're very easy to work with. They speak in a certain way. They look good in pictures, right? Or they Mm. look good on brochures or they have a relationship with key stakeholders. And that's a problem. Because we are also missing a lot of the other voices, a lot of the other narratives, a lot of the other stories that represent thousands, if not millions of people, but because they're not easy to work with, or they don't sound a certain way or look a certain way, or they're uncomfortable to be around, let's just be frank, they're not given seats at the table, they're not offered to come to the White House, they're not offered to speak on a podcast, they're not offered to write articles, they're not offered to be research fellows. And so I think we really need to consider who are we picking to represent as leaders of this movement and why, and how can we be more inclusive, really?
1: Well, but Ivory Bennett is the name. Ivory Bennett, the podcast, is the name of the podcast. Go check her out on safecampaudio.org. One episode in, many more to come. Can't wait to see what we do with it. Ivory Bennett, thanks for joining us on the Imprint Weekly Podcast. Thank you. Thanks to Ivory Bennett, Youth Voices Rising Director and podcast host for joining us today. The Imprint Weekly Podcast is a production of SafeCamp Safe Camp Audio Network, which is a division of Fostering Media Connections. Please visit safecampaudio.org on the web or Safe Camp Audio on all major social media. This podcast is produced and mixed by Christine Onjoko with music by Luke Giroux and Cyrus Elia. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you consider subscribing or giving us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate if you would consider supporting our work here on the podcast and in print. Small donations from our listeners and readers go a long way towards helping us grow and cover more great stories in child welfare and youth justice. To support us, it is super easy. Just visit imprintnews.org forward slash donate. You can follow The Imprint on Twitter and Facebook by searching the handle at The Imprint News and visit us on the web at imprintnews.org. You can always get us on email at tips at imprintnews.org. I'm John Kelly, and we'll see you next week.